This episode is sponsored by Overcast, a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now. Unless it's Overcast. Get Overcast for free on the App Store. Hey guys, this is Unji Kim giving you a solo Ajima show today. Peter is in Yosemite. Living it up, being outdoors, loving life, being with those who love him, those he loves. And I am in the basement. Talking to you guys, though. Um, How are you? Hope you're well. Joe Biden has spoken to the country, and the Republicans have trotted out their one black friend, Senator Tim Scott the sole black Republican senator to rebut the sort of inspirational speech that Biden gave that um, if you guys are following the news, you know, was a described a plan to bring us into the mid 20th century, the mid, no, what is this? The early aughts where the rest of Europe has been. Um, It was exciting. It felt good to see two women behind him. Um, yeah, it was. It felt good to hear some, uh, to to watch a president address the nation, who wasn't insane, and um, someone who spoke a message of unity, albeit in the sort of classic politician way, you know. Um, because you know we I, I just, we just want to be lied to in a specific way. That is the difference between, I guess, uh, us and Republicans at this point. Um, I just wanted to, today, uh, I'm going to call this episode something like, So You're Nervous? Or Anxiety? Schmanxiety. Um, You know, as we, let me just say this, I'm... For those of us who are, you, you know, fully vaxxed, partly vaxxed, waiting to be vaxxed, we are kind of confronting the truth about re-entering society at this point. And after having lived a life for about a year where we've been forced to have, I mean, let's be honest here, we've all been forced to have like a certain low-level anxiety disorder for the last year. And... You know, we're having to face the reality of uh, what it is to no longer have that. And um, Peter and I actually had wanted to speak about this when this article came out. It's in Wired. um, And it's about the hikimori. Hikikomori. That's right. That's the actual Japanese phrase. Um, And in Korean, it's the un. But these are people, um, specifically men, in their teens, 20s, 30s, that live alone or more often live in their mother's houses, parents' houses, and hide from public view. And it's this exactly what I do. They, they kind of shut themselves in. The term hikikomori was specifically coined in 98 by a Japanese psychologist. And it's, they use it to 
describe the person and the condition. And it was in a book called Social Withdrawal, Adolescence Without End. Um, and this Japanese psychologist defines the hikikomori as those who, quote, withdraw entirely from society and stay within their own homes for more than six months and for whom psychiatric disorders do not better explain the primary causes of this condition. And the Japanese government also came out with their own very similar definition. And in some extreme cases, this period can span a decade or more. Um, There's no standardized criteria for this, but what I've just described is what we've all been living for the last year. And the... We've all kind of heard about this phenomenon in Japan, something that's been happening in East Asia a lot, um, but in, in Korea specifically, it's become a rising issue. And now there are some that are called hardcore types, like people who never leave their room, don't speak to anyone. And some researchers have discovered a so, quote-unquote soft type of hikikomori who might occasionally speak to other people, like their mothers, for example. Um, there are some people that call this a secondary. There are some things called a secondary hikikomori, where this type of withdrawal can be a part of an underlying psychiatric disorder, like depression or OCD. And then there's primary hikikomori, people who don't have a seemingly another condition. And this quote, according to the Japanese psychologist, um, alludes to a directional uncertainty on whether prolonged social withdrawal is caused by, correlated with, or causes other psychiatric disorders. Now, although Japan was the first to identify it, it's been reported across Asia, Hong Kong, Singapore, China, and most uh, prominently in South Korea. And now, whether or not this occurs outside of Asia is sort of a point of contention. Um, some researchers say that it's like it happens here. And I think, you know, in this past year, we're starting to see the rise of it of sort of like internet only troll communities. You know, we laugh about it. Look at these men. They, uh, they don't fuck. They can't have relationships. They're, you know, um, you know, just, uh, click clacking in these basements and these rooms. They don't do anything else. And it's given rise to a specific type of conservatism, libertarianism, um, kind of exclusive to young men. But uh, some researchers think that the syndrome is quote-unquote culture-bound, meaning that it specifically comes out of and is unique to the cultural context of Asian countries um, because of our ideas of shame, conformity, family structure, and specifically success. And I think that the shame, and so they're basically trying to say that because these expectations in the Asian countries is so much more intense, that the shame brought on by that is what leads to this type of isolation. And we're experiencing that now, given that... um, but there's no shame. It's because of a national, international, unprecedented, to bring that chestnut of a word out again, situation. You know, the pandemic. 
pandemic and you know there's because inside of Korea and Japan there's a very competitive job market access to the type of traditional success that these um people feel like they need to achieve it becomes incredibly difficult and again i think we're seeing that now here and is that even i don't know about traditional forms of success which is certainly the case because also in america i would argue that the success is also blamed the lack of success is also blamed on the individual and never the system um, much like in korea and japan um you know but again in korea and japan there's a different kind of infrastructure around family and jobs but it's very similar um and you know we've talked about it on this pod before where south koreans you know are kind of understanding what it is to live in this meaningless capitalist society when when the only objective is to make money and to show others that you're making money and the only way to survive is to make money and be degraded while doing so it makes for a very meaningless existence and it seems to be inside of pandemic what we've all kind of acutely understand now is that meaninglessness can feel like the most pressing oppressive kind of hopelessness you know like without meaning that it's harder and harder to justify spending time away from your family spending time away from your um passions and that's kind of you know that's why guitar sales are gone up there was a there was a worldwide bike shortage you know motherfuckers want to go out there and ride a bike feel the wind in their hair look at nature you know and we didn't have time to do that so aside from that we're, because we're all experiencing this sort of truth about having withdrawn i think we're also in a position where we can empathize more with these men because the prospect of going out there knowing the sort of like meaninglessness feeling this shame and also having a justifiable fear for what is out there at this point right we've been at this point told and it's been so deeply impressed upon us the dangers that the outside world hold for us and now as we stand at the precipice of re-entering society what that means so the article kind of describes how most of these men live um and it's eerily similar to how we live now you get your grocery delivered you have food take brought in you watch all your content and uh entertainment is um solely from the internet streaming and then all your social interactions are from um social media or forums um for me i specifically i love uh reddit forums i don't ever participate i've done it once or twice i'll never admit to um I'll never admit to you guys what forum discussions I've engaged in. Um, because let me just tell you this. 
I've never contributed an opinion that was helpful. And it was never a discussion that I uh, should have been in. So, you know, that's a secret that I just told you guys about. And um, there's a la- another layer of mystery that, uh, yeah, that I'll take to my, that I'll take to my grave. Um, so these are all conditions that we're, we're familiar with now. Um, in the relationship that the hikikomori have with their own computers is intense. And now, while they say that researchers say that the excessive like um, computer, like technological sort of usage doesn't cause this condition, it helps make our near total confinement possible. Now, what used to be required, like if you wanted to buy clothes or do anything, you had to kind of at least the very least go down to your bodega, but not anymore. Now, once we t- as we're talking about this. We live in a world where, in the, even in the last year, this type of isolation has become more and more plausible for more and more people um, because of innovations in technology, the rise of all kind of delivery app situations. And we know, even in this past year, how isolating that feels, but at the same time, how warm this cocoon can eventually start to feel. You know, you're, you feel deeply dissatisfied. There's like this hole in your life where social interaction once was. But again, it's almost a kind of a testament to our, our own brain's um, resilience that we do fill this emptiness with things. We figure it out a little bit. Now, the fact that no contact was encouraged, (laughs) you know, for a while in our lives. Something that is so antithetical to mental health. And again, as we face the prospect of re-entering, I mean, I think maybe this is something that resonated with me because I'm facing this kind of anxiety. Um, And, you know, I, when I went into a smoothie bar to enjoy you know in the way that you can enjoy any kind of smoothie you know it's it's fine but i went in there to get a smoothie and freaked out like i've never i I, you know i've had uh i've panicked and i think some people would describe my personality as i'm panicky anxiety riddled anxiety ridden anxiety uh I'm anxiety plus. I'm pro. I'm pro anxiety. Keeps you on your toes. Make sure that, you know, when they, when, when they come for you, when they come for us, I'm going to be ready. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm pro. But I, I don't think I've ever experienced true, a true panic attack, you know. Um, and it felt, I, I think that's something, it was, it was as close to that as I've ever come in my life. Like, blood rushing uh, to my, you know, whatever, my extremities, the, the, the ringing, the, the ba-boom, ba-booms of uh, the blood and the whatever rushing in my ears, um, shallowness of breath. You know, I had to get, I had to get the fuck out of here. That's, that's all my body was telling me, and I did. And 
after I experienced that and recognizing that, oh, fuck, you're not okay. This is when I sort of realized the conversation that we've all been having with ourselves. You know, this anxiety about going out, being in places that has been driven home by this pandemic. That's this kind of sustained conversation with yourself can have obviously detrimental effects. But, but right up until recently, it's the thing that's been keeping us alive, keeping us safe. Again, so now we have to develop a new relationship with our anxiety, with this idea of COVID. So I've been trying to uh, really kind of do like a, not immersion therapy, but like I've been doing little things. I stood outside um, of a store, thought about going in. I... Uh, you know, started, I, I went to an outdoor dining area and wore my mask and sat with uh, other vexed friends. And I sipped a little bit of the Diet Coke through my little masky mask and, uh, you know, held my core in for, I think, an hour and a half while, you know, the two friends I was there with had a nice chat and I, to which I contributed a little. And I didn't leave. So I was freaking out, had a Diet Coke, mask on most of the time. I didn't freak out. And then I got my nails done. And let me tell you, it was my traditional place that I go to. It's a Korean place. Clearly, they don't have as many people. Um, and the, when we saw each other, when I called and we made my appointment and then when I went in to see them, we both kind of welled up. We were so happy to see each other. We, again, didn't really address it. I didn't say shit. Um, the Ajima doing my nails, you know, smiling. She was schmizing. Smizing hard. You know, we're smizing at each other because that's what we have to do with the masks. But we were both very emotional when we saw each other because each other's presence was merely, um, it's, it became a touchstone because it was like, this is a normal face that I used to see all the time. You know, this was a relationship I'd had and we used to see each other all the fucking time. And after a year to, you know, we kind of tacitly both made the choice to not address it because it was too fucking sad. You know, how do you catch up? Both of us are so irreparably different. Conceivably, both of us have experienced deep loss in this time. And, you know, there's, it's kind of, it would be kind of difficult to, Talk about that with, you know, someone, that your, your person that you go get your nails done with. But the fact that we looked at each other, shared this moment, clearly we're welling up with, their, with emotion. 
That was the point of content. That was the point of contact, of connection. You know, and we did something for each other by our mere presence, by simply being a touchstone of normalcy again. You know? So, I mean, it, it, it felt good. And it was like another way. It was just like this. It was a small step, a small shallow step towards, a, 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 towards re-entry. So I stood in there. Uh, didn't stand. I was sitting. Um, getting my nails done. And then after that, I had to go to an um, indoor baby shower. Where everyone was vaxxed, and that was really surreal. That was surreal. And the thing is, all of us felt it collectively. We were very shy. I mean, there were a couple of older people there that were living loose, living, you know, because they'd all been vaccinated for a longer period of time. And, but the others, People that had more recently been vaxxed. Um, and we were all very cautious. People that were, that were, people that were halfway were wearing masks, but like those of us who were fully. You know, it was just this other point where we're looking at each other and it was just surreal. It was surreal. And Again, it's tough to talk about because you're at a fucking baby shower. So <laughs> it's not like you can be like, hey, who, you know, things been tough. You go through a thing, you go through a weight loss journey and then a weight gain journey. You know, you start drinking too much. Yeah, me too. You get over it. Yeah. You know, you have kids. Isn't that been a nightmare? I mean, because these are such private conversations and also kind of painful things that we've all lived and survived. So, and at the same time, you're at a barbecue, you're at a baby shower, you're at a fucking thing. We're all hurtling towards normalcy while trying to, it, it, it feels like, you know, you're half-dressed and someone is pushing you out the door. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Um, you know, when you got to get out of a place when you're half-dressed. You know, you're scrambling. You got to clip a bra on in the hallway. You got to, you know, put on shoes in, in the doorway of a, an apartment building that you don't remember entering. Um, you know, it's that kind of feeling where you're not completely ready. But the circumstances... Have kind of forced us into this situation. And, you know, it's the, one of these things where as I'm re entering, dealing with my anxiety, taking so many supplements, um, you know, I don't know if you've heard me describe to Peter my very thick neon yellow but like I'm taking so many supplements that's what happens when you take a lot of supplements I'm on the I'm on vitamin D I'm on B I'm on A uh, taking St. John's war 
um, you know, just anything to kind of buttress and buoy my natural shit so I can get to this place. And it seems that, you know, it's working, um, forcing myself into these situations, connecting, and, you know, ultimately others are, are, everyone is feeling this. That's what I'm trying to say. That it's not even the sort of niche group of people in Korea and Japan, these men that have been living with this since the 90s. But we've all been through it now. If, we were, if you were a good citizen, you force yourself to have this condition. <laughs> like, we've all been forced to take on this anxiety. And, you know, I've been talking to people who are, like, I would say stalwart mental health people. Like, they're good. Like, bitches that are very, you know, well-adjusted. They're nervous. They're nervous. They're ang- they would never use the word anxious because that's not their, you know, situation. They've never lived with it before, so they don't understand necessarily intimately or their relationship with this feeling. But they're anxious. And while as we're talking about it, it's like the only way that we can move forward and out of the situation, in the same way that the hikikomori, their treatment is communal living. We have to look to each other. You know, um, we have to lean on each other in a way that can't be taxing because we're all going through our own shit. But the way in which you know, that Ajima's eyes was like, we're looking to mine. And she was pushing back my cuticles, maybe a little too far. That's the thing. It was that connection that kept me there. That helped me calm me. Because... We also have no idea what any of us have gone through. And with most people, honestly, you know, if they haven't spoken to anyone in their lives, and as we get out there and we start talking to each other, we'll maybe get snippets. We couldn't be there really for each other in this way. And that is the great sadness. But these moments of connection that's we have to create more of these data points we have to create more of these moments because that's only the only thing that's going to compel me to get out there you know i was i was realizing how much gratitude i have for like these really basic things now because you know i i've eaten uh at a outdoor restaurant now uh twice and every time I leave, both of the times, I've looked at the dishes I've left behind and almost cried. Like, that's a mess. I'm leaving here. Fuck, I don't have to do these dishes. I'm out. It's like a mic drop. Bitch. Thank you so much for handling. You know? 
like looking at the wait staff, just teary eyed. Like, I'm sorry I made this mess. But this is for you. I don't have to pick that up. Thank you. You know, when I. And, I, and, and that's really the only, you know, I haven't been in a store yet. It doesn't feel pressing as much. And I have to go indoors. But I feel like I feel the same. Like, thank you so I don't have to use Amazon. Thank you so I don't have to use this, you know, online portal and then wait two weeks for whatever bullshit I felt like I needed to buy at 3 a.m., you know? I'm looking forward to the fact that I don't have to buy a beach waiver at 3 a.m. to calm myself. Because I'm worried I'll never have beachy wavy hair. It's, I have a, so a lot of gratitude. I do. I have a lot of gratitude for small things, which is nice. Which is nice as we enter. As we re-enter society. But, you know... When people, it's like, this is a, um, a, a reality, like, when people have near-death experiences, like, you know, when people jump off, you know, base jumping or some shit like that, or, um, you know, interact with sharks, like, near-life, or, or, or cancer, you know, when people have near-death experiences like that, they emerge from that experience with a great deal of gratitude, Right? for life and shit. And it gives them a new lease on life, a new perspective. And I to say, apparently that lasts about two years. Like these motherfuckers come to the precipice, come to the cusp of the abyss. And they feel so much deep gratitude. But we forget. We literally forget. And you get back to being an asshole. I'll be honest. I mean, like, even in the time since I've been fully vaxxed, yeah, I've gotten super busy. Invites are rolling in. May is booked. June is quickly. I'm getting pressed. You know? Like someone yelled at me in their car the other day. I mean, I was driving poorly, but still. You know, it's... I'm, I'm struggling with the anxiety and still trying to hold on to the lessons I feel like we've learned. And it's like this mixed bag of new shit as we enter we re-enter the same way that i had the same bag of shit when we were withdrawing and you know everyone you know i i just wonder what's going to happen to all the guitars all the rvs you know all that podcast equipment that people invested in you know what happens you know do, do did it actually bring any joy what was important. And I think what I'm realizing is that it was ultimately human. I mean, also insane. That I'm talking about human connection on a podcast that I'm doing by myself. <laughs> uh, 
But it's true. You know, you guys in this time have also been incredibly important. Peter and I have a great deal of gratitude, which won't go away. But it's been something in the last couple of weeks that I've been really struggling with and thinking about a lot. Because life is starting. Life is starting again. And I just feel so half-dressed. I feel like, oh, I wish. Like I need a, I feel like I need a vacation before I get out there again. You know, like a shoring up of internal resources. Like I want to, I want, I, I need to, I need to clean my room. I want to be fully dressed. I want to button up my shirt. Thank you. You know, I'm just wearing this going out top. I didn't expect to be out on the street at 7 a.m. I'm wearing a tube top. So, with the hikikomori, you know, how to help them is very difficult. There's nothing prescribed, but it seemed to be kind of what we're describing. It's a two, it's a two-pronged thing where they have to decide that they no longer want to be this way, that they're ready, that they, not that they're necessarily ready, but they're ready to be ready to get out there, to understand that this way of living is not acceptable. And a lot of them look to online help. They start watching videos. They join online forums to help themselves get out of it. So they use the very things that had helped them stay in to help them get out. Now, that's a, I think that's a double-edged sword, like internet. Not sure. And then they kind of get themselves together. They start showering. They put on clothes. They talk to other people about it. And they start trying to get out. You know? One of the hikikomori in this Wired article wrote a book that was called Unexpectedly Hikikomori for 10 years. And... He started helping others, telling government officials about it, and helping reintegration groups. That's what they're called. And he tried to launch his own thing where it's a space with food and drinks and people can come in and try to connect with others that maybe have, that are suffering from the same affliction. And he opened up cafe, which inside of pandemic obviously has been suffering. But hopefully, you know, it survived. And, you know, that hikikomori that had found a certain amount of uh, solace in this place and were making strides towards becoming healthier instead of pandemic, you know, we're all, we all suffered. And for them particularly, they were well, I mean, they're kind of uniquely equipped to be ready for this, but also we're the one, are, the, are some people that stand to suffer a lot from it. And 
I think as I am re-entering, I am trying to have less disgust and less, uh, I'm trying to have a higher tolerance for myself. Be kinder. But not too kind. Because I still got to get out there. You know? Was this too sad? This is where I was today. Sorry, guys. (laughs) I mean, it's going to be a thing. It's going to be a thing. It's going to be a thing for all of us. I mean, so many people are like, feel, I feel like I've talked to so many people like, I'm ready. I'm ready to go into the club. This is what I want to do. And the idea of getting into a club right now, something like that I've really missed. I mean, I love the club. I do. Uh, I love the dance. I love, you know, as I approach 40, I realize how much movement and I love like music and just that experience, you know, as someone who lives so much entirely in their brain, like just a compilation of writhing bodies on a dance floor is something that is incredibly freeing. And, you know, for me, I'm also a phenomenal dancer. <laughs> I mean, no, but you know what I mean. It's very freeing. You know, if you're a, a thinky person. But the idea of doing that right now is terrifying. And I won't. I, pro- I, I, I just 100% won't. I don't know if it, we ever, you know, people are like, well, we, we, there's certain facts about life that will never be the same. And I think that is true. There are some people that will never, I mean, none of us should be the same. That would, you would be fucked up if you were chill and totally the same. And as we move forward, like, I think that is the other part of this conversation, how different we all look coming out of the cave. You know, and it's not, bad it is it just is we you you know i there are some people i i don't even recognize when i look at them online and then when i meet them in person i recognize them even less because i only know that it's them on social media because their name is their handle says tells me what they are who they are once i'm out there like if you're ripped and you weren't ripped before how do i recognize you you know people are changed I mean, yeah, there's uh, several people that I know now who have, who have abs. It's different from when I used to know them. It's, it's going to be an ad- We're going to all have to adapt, you know? And I just, this is where I was this week. Sorry, again. I don't know why I'm saying sorry. This, this is... You, you're the ones that checked in. <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah. You're the ones that checked in. I would say that, you know, I think that as I'm starting to reacclimate and get out there again. There's three things I've written down this week. 
about one um, staying connected because I feel myself really trying to withdraw again because it does feel overwhelming. It's, you know, it's like when you've been in the dark and you see too much, you go outside and your eyes need time to readjust to the light. And it almost feels better to just go back inside, you know, and as you all know, it's something that I really love because I hate the sun. But it's something I've been forcing myself to do. One. Two. I have made, I wrote it down to be kinder to myself. To stop getting so angry. Um, and to be kinder to others. And three. To move again. In whatever way. If you can't go into the club, what have you, but I'm talking about making moves. Like, remember that it's allowed now. You know, that I can. And to be grateful for it, you know? That's a part of the kindness, the gratitude. Be grateful. Because that helps move you forward. You know? But yeah, the... Anxiety, that's all. I mean, we're all living it. Some people seem to be having it less. But for those of us that are struggling, I guess that's what this was for. That's what this whole pod was for. <sighs> okay, be right back with uh, Kick Ass You know, I, I, I was in, I was in um, my Drake feelings, I think. Uh, and <laughs> I think we also need to talk about the Yeon Yujung Oscar speech. Um, hilarious. If you guys watch the Oscars, you know that she, uh, the South Korean actress, played the grandmother in Minari, uh, won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. She went up there looking flawless. And, you know, called out Brad Pitt because he his uh, plan B entertainment, uh, I think, is one of the producers for the sh- for the movie. And, you know, very funny. She did a type five solid set, um, you know, and also pointed out the fact that, she, you know, she loves to work, you know, and that's it. She's a fucking actress. Didn't need this accolade. She's like, yeah, this is a thing. It's cool. Thank you. And. You know, it was very funny in the <laughs> the disparity in the coverage. Everyone wanted to talk about that Brad Pitt moment. And in the Korean news, people were like, <laughs> she kept being like, they wanted to really talk about this Brad Pitt thing. Get over it, you know, whatever. But there's this moment where she's talking about her sons. And, you know, in Yeon Yoo-jung's career, she left. She lived in the States in the 80s uh, for a, like a decade. She was trying to do it. She left, had kids, um, came to the States with her husband, and she left. She came back. She's like, I am divorced. And she just tried to do it again. And there was a lot of stigma because she was a divorced woman back in Korea when that was still, I mean, and honestly still is, kind of stigmatized. And bitch made it work. 
She worked hard. She had to be undeniable. She's one of those. And her career up until now has been stellar, iconic. And these accolades happening for her at, at this stage in her career in America. This is almost, this is gravy. I mean, she's, I mean, this is gravy on gravy. She's already living a gravy filled life in Korea. You know, she, and the thing is, she never sought it out. She's good. She said to call that out. Because <laughs> it was, spec. I mean, it was a very bizarre Oscars. So just to see that moment happen for her. And it happened for us as a culture. Honestly, the Oscars needed it. Um, and looking flawless, truly. Okay. Now, your favorite part of the show and mine, Kick-Ass Koreans. Kia! Um, I'm going to talk about this Korean-American prosecutor, Richard K. Kim. Um, he recently passed away and, uh, of COVID. And this is the thing. His obit in the fucking New York Times. Yeah. He was appointed assistant district attorney in Queens. In Queens in 1985. 1985. I mean, he came to America in 1970. Got an MBA from Columbia and became a CPA. Right? And as he's working as a, as a CPA, because, and the reason why he did that was because due to his language, the language barrier, he, numbers was a language he could speak. Bitch, what? That's incredible. So as he's working as a CPA during the day, he... This bitch is going to Fordham Law School at night for seven years. At seven years. And then, admitted to the bar in 1984, sworn in as Queen's Assistant District Attorney a year later. Among the first Asian American prosecutors in the U.S. Now, there is no record of who was the very first. So they think there was like a Chinese American guy, Randall Ang who uh, served as an assistant prosecutor in Queens in 72. And then um, another Chinese person born in Shanghai, named in Manhattan in 1976. But Mr. Kim is one of the first. Okay. Um, he was born in Seoul for, in 1944. And his father was a lawyer and an author. It's like fancy people. And they fled Seoul uh, when he was six. He graduated from Seoul University. If you all know, that's like very impressive. Everybody knows. And he came to America when he was 25. 20 fucking five. And he got his bachelor's from Columbia along with his MBA. And I mean, what's incredible is that he, he knew that because language was not necessary in accounting, that's why he wanted to do it because he's, he needed to be still at a level. And then their daughter became a civil rights lawyer and the first Korean American elected official in San Francisco. Okay. <laughs> I mean, fancy, fa fancy family. After he served, he went into private practice. Um, and <laughs> then he became, well, then he became CFO and general counsel to a cosmetics company that went global. 
So he's fine. Um, but yeah, this is uh, just a person that I wanted to highlight because you know all the the stories are still coming out, guys, and you know we still have to stay vigilant. It's still a thing. Still have to be careful. Still have to look after our elders, and. I mean, I was really hoping to end this on a higher on a higher note. Um, there's a uh, how about this one? A young boy, a TikToker, saved his grandpa's uh, sushi business in Dallas because he was about to go into bankruptcy because of COVID. He came over from, his grandfather came from uh, Korea in the 60s and started a sushi restaurant. (laughs) And then he did a TikTok, this little boy, Andrew Kim, did a TikTok and they, the, the sushi restaurant went crazy viral. It went, people... People, they couldn't fill the orders fast enough. Um, it's called Sushiya, the restaurant. And the promo video went viral. Millions of views. And attracted new customers. And yeah, he saved his, yeah, his uh, grandfather's restaurant. I mean, let's keep doing that, guys. Let's help save... Asian restaurants. I mean, I'm I'm keeping. I I know that I'm keeping one Korean restaurant in Chicago going. I gotta be. I mean, just on their samgyeopsal and hajin orders that I'm getting from them alone. Yeah. So, hopefully that's better. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Um, stay safe. I love you guys. And thanks for tuning in. Bye. Audio.